Greetings, Alpha Seekers, and welcome to uh, the uh, Christmas Day edition. So Merry Christmas for those of you who are uh, Christians, and a Happy New Year to all of you who observe the Western calendar. So uh, today's focus is on a woman who's been uh, in the news lately, if you're a financial news buff as I am. Remember, I watch CNBC, so you don't have to. But I also read things like the Financial Times. And the woman uh, of the year is Kathy Wood, who is founder and chief executive of ARC Investment Management. And her performance, uh, which I'll get you some numbers on, just killed this year. She just outpaced even the NASDAQ by an, an enormous factor. And as a result, she is her assets under management are really exponentially growing. So uh, we'll begin by recounting uh, her argument from an article in the Financial Times, a very respected uh, publication. It's actually a UK pub. So the title is Stand Ready for the Five Big Technology Convulsions Reshaping Markets. Investors must position portfolios for the innovations that will transform the global economy. So uh, ARC is very bearish on companies that leverage their balance sheets to buy back their own shares and pay dividends. Because the argument against that is that if you've got nothing better to do than pay cash out and buy back stock so that you maximize shareholder value essentially by gaming the system, uh, then it's not a very good company. And the, the reason you're gaming the system is that uh, shareholder value is driven by the stock price, obviously, and the dividends. And the stock price is, to a certain extent, a function of, of the dividends because what's a stock really worth? It's just, as Kramer says, a piece of paper. But if it pays you dividends, then you can, you can do a multiple of the total return. Um, and the stock price is, like anything else, a function of supply and demand. So the fewer shares there are, lower the supply, even with the same underlying demand, uh, the price is going to go up. That's one of the arguments for Bitcoin is it's a fixed number of, of, uh, of Bitcoins that are out there. So, you know, if you just influence the denominator, if you will, the earnings per share will go up with the same earnings if there's fewer shares. It's like, duh. So if you're a CFO, you say to the CEO, look, we can make this thing go up just by uh, buying back shares and just changing the math, the denominator. So uh, that's what she's criticizing. And especially if you go out and borrow money to do it, you know, because then your, your debt load gets bigger. Now, right now, the debt... Uh, is so cheap, companies are buying or are borrowing money just for the sake of buying back shares and paying dividends, which is kind of like a, a private equity strategy. But it's financial engineering. 
And her argument at the end is that, you know, people who are trying to borrow money just to do that may have higher borrowing costs as time goes by because they're not really innovating or disrupting or convulsing the market. They're just playing a little mathematical game. That's, uh, you know, that makes sense. So she figures that the five main platforms of innovation that will transform the global economy are DNA sequencing, robotics, energy storage, artificial intelligence, and blockchain. These involve 14 technologies, including gene therapies, 3D printing, cloud computing, big data analytics, and cryptocurrencies. Uh, and her point is that they cut across sectors. So like Tesla isn't just a car company, obviously. It has energy storage uh, plays. It has AI plays with self-driving, blah, blah, blah. So a lot of her money has been made on Tesla, actually. And she's been a firm and early believer in Tesla. And that's turned out to be right, you know, at least for the moment. So uh, she thinks that the sectors that are most at risk of disintermediation are energy, industrials, consumer discretionary, communications, healthcare, and financials. And autonomous transport uh, evolution could hurt autos, rails, and airlines. Uh, traditional healthcare. Uh, could be hurt by DNA sequencing, AI, and gene therapies. And I, I kind of buy that, you know. Um, some of these technologies really have the potential to eliminate diseases, which eliminates the need to treat them. Traditional financial services, she thinks, are vulnerable to APIs, application programming interfaces, social platforms, and blockchain that will enable convergence of business and consumer marketplaces. Uh, she thinks that developed world legacy companies that uh, have the mature infrastructure that we've established in the developed world are particularly vulnerable, whereas the... Uh, Developing world, you know, a lot of they're skipping a lot of the stuff that we have to disintermediate. You know, like in Africa, for example, it's all cell phone driven, so they don't have the legacy platforms. They just never develop. Uh, the sectors at risk of disintermediation account for half of the S and P five hundred. Uh, from the small bases of today, innovation platforms will dramatically grow due to lower costs and higher productivity. In response to the 28% cost decline in lithium iron, iron, lithium ion batteries, for every cumulative doubling in units produced globally, prices will fall. Turbocharging electric vehicle sales, EV sales will increase 20-fold globally within the next five years from 2 million or 2.5% of the market to 40 million or 45%. Uh, the direction appears clear, regardless of whether it hits that estimate. And so pet more expensive petrol-powered cars will lose half of their sales base, 
which is bearish for the legacy companies, obviously, like GM and Ford, uh, the auto market in general will shrink as capacity utilization per car increases. So the argument is that these autonomous cars will uh, enable people to just do kind of rideshare things without drivers, so you don't really need to have a car. You just summon an autonomous vehicle, and it takes you where you want to go. So why bother owning one? You know, carjacking isn't even going to be a profitable business. Why steal one when you can get it basically for free? Now, there's some... You know, criminal opportunities there, I suppose. But um, anyway, it's possible. Growth and value of goods and inflation are likely to surprise on the low side as market share shifts to the poorly measured digital world. And this, when we were working with a valuation expert uh, and a PhD economist with Fed experience, and he made the point that, you know, Valuation can't be done the way it used to be on, on hard assets. It's a function of uh, data and software and intellectual property. So that's for sure. And so she categorizes this as good deflation associated with technology. In other words, it's more efficient and effective. And I buy that. So that uh, contradicts the notion of runaway inflation in the next decade. Winners will win in a big way, but losers, particularly those that have levered balance sheets that play that uh, buyback game, will unwind. Risk-free interest rates likely to remain low, but the spreads between companies on debt costs could widen dramatically as disruptive innovation causes dislocation. So in other words, if you're just gaming the system and you're doing it on cheap debt, that game could be up pretty soon. Traditional equity benchmarks are being populated by so-called value traps, stocks that are cheap for a reason. Critical to investment success will be moving to the right side of change, the right side of history, as they often say. Well, you know, I buy some of that. Uh, I'm kind of skeptical and some of it like financial and healthcare because there's a rice bowl issue here. Uh, you know, the people who are incumbents are not going to let that business go easily. And there's a trust factor. You know, I consider myself to be a little more sophisticated than the average uh, person on finances, but I have a professional uh, team that runs my investments because you know <clears throat> there's a matter of confidence and a matter of trust and so I don't think that those folks are going to go away I think they'll be the ones that use the tools because the average person you know it's not just a question of the tech it's a question of psychology and emotional stability and I think that's true in healthcare too uh, you need a trusted advisor to tell you uh, what to believe in and what not to. You know, it's like the vaccine thing, right? The the wetware, you know, there's the hardware, the software, and the wetware. The wetware is the human brain, and the wetware is way behind the hardware and the software. So, 
on the transportation side, I think that's, I'm a little skeptical about the autonomous driving. I don't know that that's ever going to uh, really uh, get to where she thinks it's going to get. Because again, you have, again, it comes down to the wetware, you know, uh, you're, you have to predict human behavior when you're an autonomous vehicle, and that's very hard. I could see it happening on long-haul trucking and such, but even then you still need a guy in the truck to make sure nobody steals it, you know what I mean? So um, I don't know if I buy all those things, but um, let's see, where are the other things? The other industries she pulls out. Yeah, auto, rails, and airlines, self-driving planes, I don't know uh, if that's the argument. I don't know. Self-driving trains, okay, but, you know, labor costs aren't that big a deal in trains. You got one guy on the train now. So so I don't know if she's, she's right. Uh, I do think, though, that the whole biotech CRISPR thing... Has a lot of potential to cut healthcare costs through innovation, rather than you know healthcare is one area where you have really uh, not been able to reap the benefits of technology, and I think that the vaccines are a beginning of the an illustration of what can be done with with new breakthroughs in technology. As long as we preserve the incentives to innovate, we'll be okay. So now that I've laid out her thesis, and that's worked real well for her this year, uh, I'm going to read you a column which takes the other side of the trade. Like, what happens is people tend to see somebody do well and then jump on it. In fact, I've been thinking about how to play those uh, ETFs. She did, she packages things into ETFs. So, you know, you can go out and buy a fractional share or an option or whatever. So her ARC Innovation ETF was up 615% this year. So uh, she beat the NASDAQ, the Q's, by 3x. NASDAQ was up 232% since 2015. She's up 615%. And the S&P is up 111 over the same period of time. So she's killing it. Um, she's made very concentrated bets in certain areas of tech which have paid off handsomely. And the symbol for that if you do want to jump on the bandwagon, is ARKK, all right? And it really took off this year. Most of her outperformance happened this year. And a lot of that's on Tesla. So what happens then is she's also got another ETF, ARKG, um, and it's taken in a billion dollars in one day, you know, $2 billion the next day. Uh, unbelievable. So her assets under management have increased by 18,000, no, 900%. The fund's up 170% this year. The assets under management, 900%. And he points out that 
investors have an awful track record when it comes to chasing the hottest funds of the day. He mentions a couple of books here which might be worth reading. Big Mistakes by Michael Batnick. Uh, He profiles Fidelity's Jerry Tsai, who was the first star manager of funds in the go-go 60s. Things doing great. And then he took a dive in the bear market of 68 to 70, which saw momentum stocks get killed. Uh, Assets under management fell 90%, and he had the worst eight-year track record of any mutual fund in history. Peter Lynch did very well, 30% annually, uh, but most people who invested in the fund uh, would only get 7% because what happened is they'd get in when he was doing well, and then when he got out, when he started doing badly, they'd get out. So they were buying high and selling low. So even if you're in a fund that does well over time, if your timing's wrong, you're 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 dead. And here's Maggie Mahar, Mar, who knows, M A H A R. She profiled an individual investor in one of those funds in her book, Bull: A History of the Boom and Bust, nineteen eighty two to two thousand four. Uh, and he was one of those guys who got into the growth funds in the high-tech era there in the 90s, the dot-com boom, and then he got in in 2000 in spring, which is right when the market died, and he lost two-thirds of his money in that particular fund investment. Ken Hebner's CGM Focus Fund, one of the best from in the 2000s, 18% up annually, and most people got in in 2007, when it was up 80%, and then they pulled their capital when it went down 48%. So it's the sell low, buy high strategy led to an average investor loss of 11% annually. Terrible. Um, and when asked what went wrong, he replied, a huge amount of money came in right at, right when the performance of the fund was at peak. I don't know what to say about that. We don't have any control over what investors do. But investors have control. So the moral of the story is, and and even I have been, you know, not even I, but I was certainly as guilty as anybody. Uh, I was tempted to start chasing the ARC thing, and then I I read this, and this was a good cautionary tale. And he mentions another one here. So there's countless examples, obviously. And he says, I don't know if Kathy Wood will experience a similar drop-off in performance. Size is the enemy of outperformance, but you never know with these things. However, I'm fairly confident that those investors now piling into her fund will almost certainly underperform the actual fund's performance. ARKK cannot outperform at this pace forever. There's bound to be a misstep or the style will simply fall out of favor for a period of time. Many investors chasing the hot dot will head for the exits at that point. Investors don't have a great track record when it comes to chasing the hottest fund of the day. I hate to be that person, but I've seen this movie before, and it ends with a behavior gap. So I think that's my Christmas present to you today. You probably never heard of this thing. I know I haven't really heard of it until the last few weeks. But now I hear nothing but it, 
And so there'll be a lot of money chasing it. So, you know, if we were going to play that, I think the way we might play it, you know, you could sell some puts against it, against the ETFs for a while. And then the other thing you could do is buy some puts at, you know, really out of the money puts at pricing, which constitutes a technical support level, like before it ran up the way it did. And you could make some money when it, if and when it does crash to earth. Now, when you buy those puts, you know, your uh, chances of them expiring worthless are good. And if you're long the underlying, that's fine if it goes up, right? Or even if it stays the same. You know, when you buy fire insurance or life insurance, you don't hope that you collect. You hope you don't collect. But um, still, you're going to lose the premium. So... When I get into options, that's why I got in. I wanted to buy puts against another crash after the 2008 debacle. And I did it for a while, but then I, you know, I lost my resolve because they all expired, you know, worthless. So you you buy insurance when you don't need it, but it's, you know, every time I get a premium from any of my insurance, I always think, geez, I wonder if I should pay this. So anyway... That's that's the story. And the other thing you could do is, you know, sell calls against it, thinking that it ain't going to go up or mirror, but you could get burned on that. Uh, so you could go along it. You could sell calls against it. You could sell covered calls. Uh, you could sell puts, or you could buy puts. You could sell puts, you know. I don't know whether to be bullish or bearish about something like that. So I don't really have a clear thesis on it. I think she's got some points, but I think a lot of that may be baked. I mean, how much higher can Tesla go? If I was going to do anything with Tesla, I'd probably buy out of the money puts on it or short it. But, you know, like Keen said, the market can stay irrational longer than I can remain solvent. And I saw that in 2000. You know, you all throughout the 90s, you kept thinking, these things are really bubblicious but if you kept buying puts against them you could have done that for years until finally you made your money so you got to be patient if you're betting on that uh, bubble burst and most people aren't that patient i don't think i am frankly and i don't like betting i don't like bearish bets i'm the ultimate pessimist but when it comes to investing you know, I have this emotional tendency to want to bet on success, which is weird because it's so rare. But you got to know yourself, right? Aristotle or Plato or whoever said know thyself. As an investor, you got to know yourself emotionally. And that's why it's good to have a partner, by the way, uh, because, you know, rather than impulsively putting a trade on, what I always do is talk to my partner first. And he does the same with me. And we have different temperaments and different perspectives and different knowledge bases. So some of the best trades you make are the ones you never you never put on, you know. Uh, when in doubt, don't. And we will cast doubt on each other's hypotheses. And that saves us some money. So um, at this point, I don't know what to do about ARC. But maybe nothing. And that's probably what I'll end up doing until, you know, my uh, 
until I get a clearer view of it, if I ever do. Meanwhile, <clears throat> I'll probably stick with stuff I understand more, like uh, like biotech. So we did have another uh, interested investor. I think I got another nibble from somebody else in the 10 10 10 deal, which is 10% uh, for 10 months. Uh, looking for a minimum of $10,000 if we can get that. And uh, what we're doing here, the wrinkle is that sort of a gentleman's, gentle person's agreement. We give you the upside from our uh, options thing in Nugent Capital, but you don't have any liability for the downside. So that's a pretty good deal. And uh, not that many takers, but, you know, still a good deal. So that's still on the table, folks. And uh, if you want to participate in that going forward, We'll be doing more aggressive promotion of that. In March, we're going to have a broker-dealer affiliation. And uh, so, for whatever various regulatory reasons, we will probably not promote it as a 10-10-10 deal with debt. At that point, it'll just be a direct investment. And at that point, you will be exposed to any downside, okay? Because, you know, we're kind of... <laughs> we're taking a little leap here, not exposing y'all to the downside, which means we have to eat it. But, um, you know, we're we're doing that because uh, we think that if we have more uh, cash to uh, support, you know, cash-secured puts, we can, we can do a lot better at scale here. Because uh, as I've explained in the past, you know, when you sell puts, when you sell insurance on a stock, the market, uh, the powers that be, the, uh, what do they call them? The clearing houses assume you're going to lose. So you got to have enough cash in case you're going to lose everything. Now, the way we trade, you're not going to lose everything because we spread them. And, uh, you know, we sell insurance at a good premium. So, like, if, let's say I have a XYZ stock, and I sell, it's at a, trading at 100, and I sell a 95-90 put spread. Well, I'm only liable for a $5 loss because I'm selling insurance at one strike, the high strike, the 95, and then I'm buying insurance at the 90. So my maximum uh, loss there is the $5 between the width of the spread. And I'm so we always sell the the higher end option for more than the lower end. So let's say I sell it for two bucks. Well, now my maximum loss is only three bucks per share. Okay, so it's very limited loss. But the the you know the clearinghouse is going to want three bucks a share in the account to make sure that they don't lose money because they have to back that up. If you can't come up with it, they have to come up with it and they don't trust you. So, you know. And their margin requirements will vary based on you know market conditions, which stock, I think, I don't know how they do it, but it, it varies over time. So we, actually our latest investor asked, well, if I wanted to make 3000 a month, how much would I need to give you? And I said, you know what? Uh, that's over my pay grade. I got to ask my partner, and that could vary by month, 
right? So, depending on how volatile the market is. So, uh, a lot of moving parts. But, you know, we're getting reasonably competent at this. And so I told her I'd find out, and hopefully we'll have another investor here. And at least, you know, if you can't make 3000 a month, maybe you can make 1000 a month doing that, and you can figure out 2000 to get your cash flow from someplace else. So we'll see what happens on that. We have to do some ciphering, as Jethro Bodine used to say in the Beverly Hillbilly. But my partner's good at ciphering, and uh, much better than me. Very quantitative fellow. I'm more the strategist. So in any event, uh, that's what's going on this Christmas Day. And uh, as you make your decisions, keep in mind that, you know, this year's this year's winner may be next year's loser. And those boilerplate uh, verbiages you read, past performance is no guarantee of future results or really should be chiseled in stone on every investment bank and mutual fund headquarters in the country, if not the world. So, uh, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, and uh, we wish you well. Bye-bye. Live long and prosper.